0: So we're coming to uh, one of the panels of uh, today's uh, event that I believe is another highlight or one of the most critical topics. Uh, It's about navigating through industry transformation. We're gonna talk about uh, green shipping technology, fleet renewal and implications for shipping companies and investors. And uh, I'm delighted to have such an esteemed uh, panel with us Um, just before we came live we were discussing that one of the things that makes a difference really, you have so many events happening all over the world uh, digitally, but what makes a difference is uh, the topic and the panelists. So I am humbled to have with us today this powerful uh, panel. I'd like to thank Knut uh, who is going to uh, moderate it for being a great partner, uh, you know, working with us. uh, in all of our events around the world. And of course, I'd like to thank um, Gary, uh, Hugo, Kenneth, and uh, Stefan for being with us today. And now we'll turn it over to uh, Knut. Uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Nicholas. It's a great pleasure to take part again in Capital Links uh, panel discussions. And congratulations, Nicholas, on arranging this in a very professional and good way. It's a Pleasure for me. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Knut Orbeck nielsen I'm the CEO of DMVGL Maritime, and I'm extremely happy to be your panel host today. Now, our panel will lend their collective expertise to the topic of navigating through industry transformation. And before we get started, let me quickly introduce uh, to you all what I believe is really a top class lineup of speakers. So with us, we have Mr. Hugo De Stoop, who is the CEO of Euronal. We also have Mr. Kenneth Weed, the President and CEO of TK Corporation. Also, Mr. Gary Vogel, CEO of Eagle Bulk Shipping. And last but not least, Mr. Stefan Nischer, who is the Vice President Power Supply with uh, the and I think you can all agree that this is really a top line uh, panel. So thank you again uh, for joining us today. It's a shame uh, that the pandemic still prevents us from meeting face to face, but we are by now getting very used to the virtual world and I must say it's great to see uh, and have you here. And um, We can be happy that the shipping industry is making a steady recovery from the initial impact of the pandemic, but let's not forget those still bearing the brunt of its worst effects over seafarers. According to the ICS, around 400,000 seafarers are estimated to be working beyond their original contracts, unable to come to shore because six months on, they still lack international key worker status recognition. And because of this, some have spent as long as 17 17 months at sea. So if I could turn to first uh, you Kenneth and then second to, to you Gary. Uh, You have both uh, publicly expressed your concerns about this issue and um, what would you say are the long-term implications of the ongoing crew change crisis for the sustainability of shipping's workforce and safety at sea? So, Kenneth, please.
2: Yeah, thanks, Smoot, and uh, thanks for, for having me. Um, first of all, I, I think I would like to start with a message that I don't think we can repeat often enough as an as an industry, and, and that is that shipping is the backbone of uh, global trade, and um, our seafarers uh, is the backbone of, of shipping. Uh, so I I always think it's uh, prudent to take a moment to thank all our seafarers and shore based uh, staff in the maritime industry for uh, their continued and extraordinary. Uh, dedication to keep the world running, and doing so uh, with the highest commitment to to safety and and reliability. And I know that I speak on on behalf of um, certainly the panel here and the industry peers when I say that I'm I'm truly proud of and thankful uh, of how everyone who works in our industry has responded uh, to COVID-19 and the immense uh, challenges it has created while still uh, providing uninterrupted uh, service to a world that depends upon and benefits from the services that uh, our industry uh, provides. So in a world where 90% of the world's goods are transported by sea, including uh, many vital goods as we're aware of food and medical supplies, it's a real head scratcher uh, to the industry why our seafarers aren't treated as essential workers. Within our group, we've taken Uh, many steps to protect the health and safety of our crew and minimize the the hardship they face. We've obviously implemented uh, very strict COVID measures on board all our vessels during crew changes. We have provided compensation uh, to colleagues uh, who are stuck at sea, but also advanced uh, wages to to people that are waiting uh, to to get on board. Uh, We have continued uh, to work with industry and intergovernmental organizations to tackle the challenge uh, and thankfully, uh, we managed to, to do at least a partial uh, refresh of our crews. And I think the, the numbers overall certainly in, in, in our case are, are coming down in terms of the number uh, uh, overall. But but you're right, Knut, uh, it's not enough uh, because the, the official number is somewhere between 300 and 400,000 people that are still stuck at sea. And um, uh, where, where they passed their expiry of their, their contract. And similarly, uh, which is equally important, is that we have a number of, of seafarers, an equal number of seafarers that are still waiting at home, uh, eager to rejoin, ships to relieve their colleagues on board. So as, as this crisis continues, uh, I think we're all concerned uh, about how this affects the long-term health of, of seafarers and, and our industry. I mean, we are a very in- efficient uh, industry. And this efficiency has been built on a system of reliable and efficient global uh, crew changes. This system is simply not uh, working right now. Restrictions, lockdowns, delays have disrupted uh, the movement of our seafarers, which is essential to keep world trade uh, running. And the shipping uh, industry has really done its job um, to continue to, to service our customers without inter- interruption. But um, uh, the, the, uh, this efficiency has, has just had a too high a cost both to our people and, and to our trade. And uh, this must be addressed uh, through further action. We must uh, rebuild a system that allows for predictable and uh, reliable crew changes. That requ- and that of course requires a lot of ongoing work with support from ports and, and governments. And, and I actually think that this is something that, that the ports and governments need to be focused on uh, because this is re- really where the leading uh, nations of the world can set themselves apart Uh, And um, the the ports that figure this out will increase their attractiveness also in the future as being global shipping hubs. And uh, so there is an opportunity for for those uh, ports there. Secondly, and and most importantly, is the impact on our seafarers, which was your your original question. Long term, I I still am a firm believer that seafaring can and will remain an attractive and respected profession. Uh, But it is dependent on an effective and long-term solution to the crew chains uh, crisis and the current situation uh, and the impact on the health of our seafarers and and their families is not helping to attract the next generation uh, of of talented seafarers. Uh, As you know, the most recent study, including your own study estimates that the world trade is gonna double, uh, more than double over the next uh, 30 years. So we really need to uh, get the world functioning again And uh, once we've solved that problem, we actually need to go back where we left things uh, when COVID started. And that is, uh, we need to get back and refocus on how we can attract the next generation of employees that mirrors uh, our industry and our individual companies ambition to attract and retain a diverse, uh, talented and and motivated uh,
1: workforce. Great, great insights, uh, Kenneth, thank you so much. And uh, we also know that, uh, you know, even the Pope tried to intervene in this crisis and and yet we are are where we are. Uh, Gary, also, I know that you engaged yourself in this issue. Would you like to add some of your reflections, please? You are muted, Gary.
3: My apologies for that. Um, Thank you, Knut. You know, it won't surprise you that I echo many of the sentiments uh, that Kenneth conveyed, and and in particular the indebtedness to the seafaring community, who who really is at the, the pointy end of the spear here. You know, at, at our company as well. You know, we've expended significant refor- resources to, you know, deviate ships, hold over vessels, you know, quarantine crews, all with a goal to repatriate people on time. But it was virtually impossible um, in the late spring you know, definitely pleased with the progress. And I think the industry broadly has has done um, really a, an amazing job. Um, but if you're one of the crew members who's over, it doesn't matter what the statistic is. If you're the person that wants to and is entitled to get home, especially at this trying time, you know, it doesn't matter if it's only down to 5,000. And so we we owe that as, as you know, as a debt to one, do our best here, but also to make changes so that we're in a position to react to whatever comes down the pipe in the future and whenever it is. You know, the other thing is, you know, broadly, I think the industry has done great, but not all companies have the resources or the commitment to to spend the, the, the resources and the money to do that. So we need systems in place that really act as a safeguard for those people. I mean, you know, in fairness, COVID-19 has has really shown, you know, the vulnerabilities of a system that I think we, you know, work fairly well and we took for granted would always work well. And in fairness, it's done that to industries across the world and governments as well. But now we have an opportunity, you know, to, to, to do what's necessary to assure it doesn't happen, you know, happen again. I think um, picking up on Kenneth's last uh, theme, you know, we need to be able to compete with other industries to attract not just sufficient numbers to man our ships, right? But motivated, highly skilled people to work on vessels which are becoming more and more complex. And also, you know, to protect our assets, to deliver on the value proposition to our stakeholders, uh, to protect our reputations, and of course, to protect the environment as well. So, you know, I think a robust global crew change system um, is just one part, it's really a cog in the wheel. That has to work well in all environments in order to ensure we can do that going forward. Thank you.
1: Great reflections, gentlemen. Thank you. I, I guess we could spend the whole uh, panel time discussing this uh, topic uh, specifically. But this is also about, you know, transformations. Uh, and and one of the grand challenges uh, of, over time is really the decarbonization uh, or, or shipping. and. Um, I would like to turn to you, Hugo, and then uh, Stefan um, second uh, on this topic. So, with less than you know about ten percent of current new builds are ordered with uh, alternative fuel system. Uh, so, how optimistic are you that with this pace, the shipping industry will be able to meet the IMO's uh, 2050 emission targets? And and uh, you know, representing your own companies, what are you doing uh, to get there? So if we could start with you, Hugo, first, please.
4: Yeah, thank you, Knud. Um, The question is, uh, how optimistic am I? Uh, And I think I'm an optimist by nature. So I'm very optimistic. I'm also optimistic because um, I think that the shipping industry is one of those industries that has been able to adapt Um, in a very efficient way to many different circumstances. As a matter of fact, we need to adapt to an environment that is uh, changing all the time, every single day, every single month, every single year. So I'm extremely optimistic. Having said that, um, we have a target for 2050. um, And the risk is that we ignore it today because we believe that 40, sorry, 30 years down the road, uh, is is a long time away and most of the ships that are on the water today will probably not be there in 2050 because the ship lifetime is, is between 20 and 25 years. So um, that would be a huge mistake. I think that if we start by ignoring the problems and kicking the can down the road, then we never going to get there. But um, as I said, I'm, I'm an optimist uh, and what I've seen uh, in recent years and certainly in recent months is uh, uh, many parts of uh, the industry getting together uh, in order to address the problem. So when you look at, um, well, it's, it started probably at the, at the GMF three years ago when, when they created the, the Poseidon Principle, which are basically the banks or, or financiers. Uh, sort of pushing us into that direction. Uh, This year, we saw the Sea Cargo Charter, which is a little bit the same initiative from our clients. So all of that means that we are paying attention and and we are now getting uh, very focused. What you said in your introductory remarks is absolutely true. At the moment, the order book is very thin on alternative fuel, and those alternative fuel are probably not the very long-term solution. They're probably the transitional uh, solution, and I think we can we can name them. Uh, it is about LNG. And LNG does already uh, a great job in, in reducing those uh, CO2 emissions, uh, and the problem is probably that we need to speak about greenhouse gas emission. But um, what what, um, makes me uh, optimistic is that we are all running ships uh, with the internal combustion engine. Uh, And basically when we look at the fuel uh, for the future, so we have used HFO, today we are using a mix of HFO and LSFO and gas oil, all of that can be burned in the same uh, uh, engine. Uh, The LNG uh, engine is not uh, very different than what we have today. The engine that will be able to burn ammonia tomorrow is not very different than what we have today, uh, and so on and so on. It's the same for methanol, and maybe one day it will be hydrogen, uh, and and uh, ammonia and hydrogen, uh, and to a certain extent methanol are all zero emission uh, fuel. So I think that from a technology point of view, we shouldn't be worried. Um, it's it's we're gonna get there, and we're gonna get there soon. I'm a little bit more worried about what happens outside shipping, in fact. Because in order to um, run those ships on zero emission fuel, we need to produce them. And the production of those fuels um, will require a tremendous amount of investment. Um, you guys, uh, DNV GL organized a fantastic conference today. And if I can steal <laughs> the information that I acquired there, uh, I think you were talking about 650 million tons of ammonia required to fuel shipping. I think that you said that in itself will require 6,500 terawatts of electricity because we need to produce those fuels in a green way. And if we translate that in a dollar term, that is $4.5 trillion. But the good news is that it's $4.5 trillion over 30 years. And that just because of one crisis, the COVID crisis, the world has printed $7 trillion. So I'm very hopeful that uh, we can get there. Money uh, seems to be a barrier, but when you have a problem and you need to find money, you always find money. And I think that the regulator uh, worldwide, be it local, be it global, and I would prefer if it was global, I would prefer if it was the IMO has to uh, set the pace. They have to set the intermediary uh, 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 well step stone, I would say. Um, and they probably need to uh,
1: put in place a carbon tax. Hmm. Very interesting. I- I'm really happy to uh, take away that you are very optimistic, Hugo. That is a <laughs> great, great outlook. Stefan, would you like to add uh, something from your uh, insights and knowledge um, from Verzilla, please?
5: Yeah, thank, thanks, Knut, and uh, thanks Hugo also for for some very good remarks. I would say a lot of them I can echo. Um, uh, to start with, I'm also I'm also an optimist, and uh, of course, uh, coming from one of the the engine makers' side, which on top of everything has made made its purpose to to serve the society with sustainable technologies. Uh, of course, I'm I'm an optimist, and uh, and I I would say that um, I would echo what what Hugo said about technology not being the issue. I would claim that that technology is not the, the issue today, and it will not be tomorrow. Uh, it's in fact uh, possible even today to to build a, a future-proof vessel, and. Uh, um, and i think the the game here is uh, uh, is really about about the the transformation so so when i say future proof vessel i'm not talking about ultimate ultimate solutions but it is indeed possible today to to build a vessel that would operate on on, on uh, ammonia or, or even hydrogen uh, in the future and, and that with very, very minor modifications even with the technology we have today. Um, now, technology is developing fast and uh, I would say that the pace is, is even accelerating and, uh, and, and that will certainly continue. And I'm, I'm 100% sure that every engine maker there is in the world, Varxler included, have come to realize the importance uh, of of the the engine being upgradable with with whatever technology will be available and whatever fuel will be be out there. So I I would say that, uh, yeah, in, in, in short, my message would be that we have the future proof technology today already and it's uh, and, and what I mean with that to be specific is the dual fuel engines running on LNG, and, and which are uh, convertible and upgradable with coming technology. So I think it's not again it's not about the technology. It's about the the other aspects which, which Hugo raised here. It's above all it's about about uh, regulatory uh, the regulatory environment, but probably also financial.
1: Great, thank you very much, Stefan. Um, you know, uh, I think we we all sort of um, agreed that when we first heard about the IMO targets for 2050, we all thought they were very ambitious, and um, and I'm I'm saying this now because on on the next uh, question, I would like to go to you, Gary, first, and then to to Kenneth. But, you know, there there is a certain tendency that, you know, the goalpost might move. And um, whether it's uh, China declaring carbon neutrality before 2060 or the EU parliament voting to bring shipping into the scope of its emission trading system, are we seeing a shift towards what I call localism or regionalism? And um, what are your thoughts on that? Gary, please.
3: Yeah, uh, thanks, Knut. Um, well, localism, I'm not sure it's something new. You know, unfortunately, I think it's been with us a long time. Uh, at Eagle, we're in the mid-sized dry bulk tramp business. And last year, we called on over 400 different ports. And next year, there'll be ports in there that we didn't call on this year. So obviously, when you have local regulations that are, that are disparate and changing, it makes operating difficult probably more important to this discussion because you know that's just a challenge of, of business but it inhibits long-term investment if you don't know uh, what the rules will be where you're operating and by having individual local regulations they can come up in different, different timelines you know I mean as an example you know the first one that comes to mind is the ballast water treatment. it was originally adopted by the IMO in 2004 but it didn't come into effect until 2017. And you know, not that surprising. In the in the meantime, you know, the U.S. Coast Guard got impatient and created their own regulations. And so now you had first movers who went out and and you know, being honest brokers, went out and installed IMO compliant ballast water treatment systems, and now had to have to retrofit and in some cases completely install new ones. Um, then the Hong Kong Convention. I could go on, but the Hong Kong Convention you know, um, adopted in 2009, but still isn't ratified. And now we have the EU, um, you know, passing very similar, but not identical, you know, in, in terms of recycling. And the most recent example would be IMO 2020, where local jurisdictions have, and likely will continue to impose their own rules independent of the IMO. You know, the industry has invested about $8 billion on exhaust gas cleaning systems. And in a little, going back a little history, you know, the IMO effectively implored shipping to install those systems and said that they were essential for the fuel transfer over to VLSFO and without it imo 2020 without scrubbers would have been imo 2025 and you think about the implications on on human health in that regard so now you have owners ourselves included who have installed and now dealing with other regulation so i think you know looking ahead unfortunately i think localism not new but is going to continue and the path to decarbonization is, is, of course, the main topic today. And it's hard to see that it's not going to be besieged with a patchwork of regulation. You know. um, like Hugh mentioned, I, I firmly believe that a, car, a global carbon levy um, would be the most advantageous, uh, primarily for the reasons I mentioned, but also because I think it's the best chance that the funds could be used to advance technology, help build out the global fuel supply chain, And also to close the competitiveness gap that's going to exist, you know, particularly in the early days, but probably for quite some time. You know, conversely, I fear that, you know, regional levies, or more appropriately, I think I would call them regional taxes, are likely to mostly predominantly disappear um, into the coffers of, of those that impose them. But let me, uh, let me turn to being optimistic, because that seems to be you know, the theme here, right? And trying to be optimistic, you know, I do think we have an opportunity not to stop, but to mitigate these developments. You know, the shipping industry is quite fragmented within segments, across segments. And I think we need to demonstrate, we need to speak with a voice, and that's difficult, but I think we need to speak with a voice and demonstrate that we're ahead of the regulatory curve, right? that we want to be a part of this. And I don't think we've done it very effectively, uh, to be honest, in the past. So I think you know regulations will be foisted upon us if we're seen as lagging. But if we do speak with a collective voice and, and proactively, I think we can at least have a seat at the table and, and help to craft more efficient regulations. So, you know, Hugo again mentioned Global Maritime Forum, getting to zero, Poseidon Principles, Sea uh, Cargo Charter. I think they're all great examples of industry collaboration, so I am optimistic that we are doing the things we need to do right now. Um, you know, the other thing the last thing I believe is the fact that as an industry, I think the most important thing we can ask for, and this speaks to localism, but also, also global regulation, and that is clarity on what the rules will be. You know, we're talking about assets of 20, 25, sometimes even more lifespan and investment, significant capital investments across the industry. So we need unambiguous firm timelines that we can invest on with, with um, confidence. And then, of course, we need a level playing field because that's absolutely essential to continue to attract you know, new capital investment to the business, which is probably more important today than it's been uh, for, the, for stable you know, any time in the past. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Gary. Great to hear that you are also a strong uh, optimist. I, I mean, this panel is really taking off. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Kenneth, would you like to add uh, something to this, please? You are muted, Kenneth. I don't know what you did, Knut, but you
2: certainly didn't put a panel together where we were going to have a, a ton of disagreement here. Uh, but uh, and uh, and uh, without declaring that I'm an optimist as well, I I would say that I, I agree with a lot of the comments that uh, uh, that Gary just made. I mean, for for sure, it is that 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 big discussion whether we look at it from, from a macro or, or shipping uh, specific, whether you want to go far or go fast. And uh, if you want to go far, you go together. And if you want to go fast, you go alone. And uh, that's what we're seeing in, in all uh, trades of, of, uh, of, of the world. I mean, we see it with Brexit. We see it uh, when we see US uh, and, and China fighting on, on uh, uh, trade uh, disputes. Uh, we see it uh, with the uh, uh, closer to home example of the EU going alone on the GHG uh, emissions, and um, we see it uh, now also in response to COVID, uh, how the world is is responding uh, in terms of setting up um, a, a local supply chains uh, for. Uh, uh, critical uh, goods. And uh, all of those trends are clearly concerning uh, to anyone and should be in the shipping industry. I mean, we are facilitators of uh, global trade and the economic uh, development um, is is really what we are uh, facilitating here. Uh, but our uh, functions, um, our industry functions best in, a, in, in an international um, in, in, uh, environment and cooperation, and therefore uh, the local trends uh, are absolutely concerning, as, uh, as Gary says. And the question is, what can we do about it? I mean, we, I think we, we need to recognize uh, that uh, we've been uh, slow uh, to come together uh, as an industry uh, and, uh, and come up with, with better uh, solutions. And if we uh, look back at where we were and where we've been, uh, say, 10 years ago, and, and we looked at some of the market-based mechanisms that we were debating and actually had advanced uh, quite far, and then we were hit by a financial crisis and everything was was put in, in the drawer again. Um, uh, those are all examples of where it takes time to develop something that we can all agree on, uh, and it just takes a major disruption to put it back in, in, in the drawer. But... Um, I think uh, as we look at it now I, I think we need to uh, both come together with one voice clearly we're better served by having uh, international uh, regulation around this I also uh, think that the world is becoming impatient and that is a trend that we'll continue to see so whether we like it or not uh, we probably need to put our minds also to how do we respond when uh, we are faced with legislation that are are less than than optimal. And uh, the first test of that may very very well be what what we're gonna see in in Europe right now. And um, uh, hopefully we can learn something. I mean, hopefully we'll actually uh, get something that we can build on and turn into uh, a global system that will work for the entire industry. Hmm.
1: Great, thank you. Um, You know, you you share, as a group of panelists, you, you share so much uh, insight and the, the way that you, you know, emphasize that we have to come together, we have to be ahead of the curve, we have to maybe introduce a, a carbon tax, uh, and we certainly need to do research. And, and, and that is definitely something that is needed to bring us forward. And um, on this uh, next question, I would like to you know refer to Tesla. And uh, Tesla recently unveiled plans to develop a million mile battery, which could spell an end for the internal combustion engine in in cars. And uh, by 2050, how likely do you think that we will see sort of the end of the internal combustion engine in ships? And and if that were to happen, what might... uh, Uh, replace it. And if I could turn to you Stefan first and then uh, Hugo second for that one, please. Yeah,
5: thanks, uh, Knut, for that question. I think this is the the big question uh, on many people's minds in in the industry. And and I I would say that the the short answer to that question is that uh, at least I believe the likeliness of that happening is very low. Given, given the nature of, of a ship and the differences versus to say, a car, um, I'm certain, however, that uh, the internal combustion engine uh, of 2040 or 2050 will be significantly different from what we today consider a modern engine and, and, and obviously even more so different from the rather outdated technology we see in the average ship today. Uh, my longer answer would be that by by 2050 uh, we will most probably see a multitude of technologies, and and uh, with that uh, a, ver- a large variety of different fuels used across the, the shipping segments and and even regionally, and we see that happening already today. Uh, so altogether, I I don't believe for a second. Uh, in a sort of one fuel, one technology reality in in 2050. Um, The fact is that the internal combustion engine is the best technology for ships today and and will continue to be so, at least for most ship types for many years to come. Uh, And we have to remember that this technology continues to develop and I, I would claim that the technology will remain future-proof. Now, uh, having said that uh, apart from the internal combustion engines, uh, we see now uh, fuel cell technology emerging as a a potential technology. And I would say then particularly for some specific ship types and applications where where that would fit from a technical point of view. Um, But maybe what I would like to highlight uh, beyond the fuel cell is is, uh, technologies in general that would uh, uh, focus on on energy storage, energy recovery, uh, all sorts of energy saving devices or technologies, which I believe will increase dramatically in importance uh, and, and play a much bigger role in the future than we have seen so far. And this is simply because the the, the future fuels, as as we talk about them today, uh, and, and as we tran- go through the transition to those fuels, we have to remember that these fuels will be expensive, uh, most probably significantly more expensive. And, and ov- for obvious reasons, um, that drives uh, a lower use of them naturally. Uh, as we touched upon earlier, uh, uh, the decarbonization and and uh, the 2050 IMO targets, as we we know them today, um, I would say the most important thing is that the industry acts now. Uh, we, we we cannot wait and and. Uh, um, And the reality is that in terms of acting already now, the the realistic and and future-proof technology to go within a new ship today is internal combustion engines and running on gas. Uh, Having said that, uh, uh, to come back to to what we have talked a lot about, this is not about technology alone and uh, and perhaps even more so, um, and I, I fully agree with, with what has been mentioned here by by Kenneth and, and Gary and, and also Hugo, uh, the level playing field is important and the regulations, uh, I would say that, that that's even more important than the technology. So my question, and, and perhaps Hugo can comment on that, but I, what I'm thinking is that what's holding us back today as an industry, as thinking in the wider, wider industry among the stakeholders, what's holding us back? And, and, and um, how can we sort of clarify what needs to happen or who needs to move first to, to, to get going? Because that's what the industry needs. We, we cannot wait.
1: Thank you, Stefan. And maybe we, we can turn it over to you, Hugo. Um, what's your views on this, on the internal combustion engine and, and whether technology or other factors are at play that are more important?
4: Yeah, and no, I I will try to be brief because uh, I think we are running out of time. But uh, for me, this is exactly the, the kind of mistake we should not make. This is distraction. I mean, we don't even need this piece of information. Uh, fully agree with Stefan, uh, fully agree with Gary, fully agree with Kenneth. We need to act now, we need to act together. Uh, We need the regulator to give us a a, a sort of a a good uh, level playing field uh, because the rest is is really distraction. I'm not even sure that this battery would be more economical than than if we run our ships on ammonia or hydrogen. And if there is no emission, why would we favor uh, a technology that is completely unknown um, that is, uh, it, it is unknown. We don't know when it's going to come. We don't know what the price is going to be. At least we have a plan, and we can uh, we can uh, go on that uh, on on that road together. And I think that we will have the solution, and we will meet the car, the targets that have been uh, imposed uh, onto us. What is uh, what is nice is that uh, it all comes down to electricity. You know? So, whether it's battery or whether it's uh, a zero emission fuel, all of that means that massive investments needs to be made uh, in the electrical infrastructure. Um, and I think that is a little bit beyond shipping, but if we can contribute and certainly if we can have some sort of a carbon tax that can contribute to that, to the infrastructure that will be necessary for us, uh, we should uh, we should push for that regulation. I completely agree, of course, with Gary that local regulations will not serve our industry we need a global global uh, regulation and we need to see those funds coming back to our industry
1: i think that's a, an incredibly important remark here at the end and um although i had uh, you know more questions that i would like to put to you as a as a panel i think time is really running out but let me just you know um Take away, um, you know, during the pandemic, I think the maritime industry really jumped forward by at least half a decade on, you know, getting to grips with digitalization. And listening to you all, being optimistic, looking at alternatives and how to improve the industry, I think that the grounds are really there for a maritime renaissance where we are, you know, being innovative, we are taking we are shaping the future ourselves, and everything is really in our hands if we are able and willing to to grasp it. So with that, gentlemen, thank you so much for spending the time here on the panel, and thank you so much for your insights. And again, Niklas, thank you for having us, and I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you from all of us.
0: Well, I'm the one who is expressing sincere and deep thanks to all of you for an amazing panel. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Bye bye. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks.